Hello, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine, and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Peter Starr. Peter is an international ambassador for motorcycling. He's an award-winning filmmaker who has made documentaries, TV shows, and commercials about motorcycles. And his 1979 film, Take It to the Limit, is a classic documentary about motorcycle racing. Peter has published articles in most major motorcycle magazines, and he's the author of two books, including Motorcycle Traveler, about his experiences riding motorcycles in 12 countries as part of living a purposeful life. Peter also hosts the Moto Star video podcast series, and he has interviewed legendary motorcycle racers such as Freddie Spencer, Eddie Lawson, Kenny Roberts, and many others. Peter has been recognized for his achievements with numerous awards, as well as being inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame and the Trailblazers Hall of Fame. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate it. Great. Well, it's certainly an honor to have you uh, on the show. I, you've been a legend in motorcycling for a long time. And in fact, you've, it seems like you've dedicated your entire life to motorcycling. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. You know, when did you get started riding and uh, what's your background? How did you get into all of this? Well, my background, I was born in England in Coventry. And if you can remember, Coventry was the home of Triumph Motorcycles uh, back in the day. Meriden was the place where they were built. And so um, I kind of grew up around knowing that motorcycles were around, but never really got into it until after high school. And um, I went through two years of college and then got an opportunity to work for Triumph, which I took and jumped at. And that was uh, the start of an entirely new career for me. I became um, what in, in that time was basically an interpreter at Triumph uh, for German and French dealers, because my German and French was pretty fluent at the time. But that allowed me to get on the inside track at Triumph, and I ended up uh, doing four years of racing, the last year riding a Triumph uh, at all of the international long-distance races like the Barcelona 24 hours, the Thruxton 500 mile, or the Monza six hours, and races like that. And um, that was sort of the grounding that I had in motorcycling. Came to America in April 1965, ostensibly to race at Daytona, which, by the way, was then called the US Grand Prix and run by the US Motorcycle Club, not the AMA. And it attracted a lot of Europeans like Mike Hellwood and Tony Godfrey and people like that, Phil Reed and me. Not that I'm putting myself in that class, but we, I did have an international license. And, but what I found at the time was, it was much easier for me to make a lot more money on the radio being a rock and roll disc jockey with an English accent. Because <laughs> In 1965, if you can recall, I don't know if you're that old or not, but it was the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Herman's Hermits, the Animals, etc. And um, if I just by the fact that I had an English accent and happened to meet a, a radio station manager, got me into the radio business, which I was in for six years. And wow, that's cool. Did very well and became sort of in 65 and 66, toured America as, quote, the English disc jockey. And uh, we played a lot of radio stations, um, like a tour. I did a tour of America twice, and we're 65 and again in 66. And then ended up in Vancouver, BC at the end of 66 and stayed there for four years, uh, working for CKLG and CFUN radio, and got back into motorcycling and competed in the Cowbell Enduro and rode a lot of bikes at a lot of different occasions. Um, Finally, that gig ended up, um, not pleasantly, I might add, on the radio, and I ended up back in Los Angeles. And uh, um, I don't know if you remember who Bud Eakins was, whether that sure. was involved. Bud and I made friends in 1961 at Triumph, 
I was assigned to Bud by Edward Turner, who was like Mr. Triumph, if you like. Um, I was called into his office one day and he said, this is Mr. Eakins, whatever he needs, take care of it. And that's how Bud and I became friends in 61. Well, I uh, came down to LA, stayed with Bud and, and Betty for a while while I sort of got my feet, got my balance uh, in Los Angeles and um, became a record producer for four years. And in 1973, got the opportunity to make a film called The Bad Rock, which is about the ISDT two-day qualifier in Oregon. And um, even though I knew nothing about making films at the time, or very little, I said, yeah, I can do that. Um, well, I've made records, I've been on the radio. How difficult could it be? I said sure. to myself, you know. And uh, I hired people who knew what they were doing and we made The Bad Rock. And um, I watched them very, very carefully. And that's how I got my grounding in filmmaking and then went on to make pretty much, I think close to 50 films in 20 years. Um, wow. The head of it being, the, you know, Take It to the Limit being, I guess, the uh, the best known one, you know, which is a feature-length film that played in the cinema. Absolutely. And so, you know, with Take It to the Limit, you know, that's, uh, you focus a lot on, on different styles of motorcycle racing, but you also had some innovations there in terms of filmmaking. It sounds like you, you know, you, uh, even if you weren't trained as a filmmaker, you learned from those that you were working with. And so how did uh, you approach Take It to the Limit? Well, mainly, um, to be quite honest, the way that that film came together, which we did a film, I did a film with Marty Smith, one with Roger DaCosta. We did the Champion Spot Pro Classic at Ontario. I was in 74. 75, I did a dirt track film called The All-American Race, where I followed Gary Scott, Rex Beauchamp, Corky Keener, and Mert Lowell around uh, through their season. And I looked at this footage and I said, you know, there's a lot more here than we've got. There's a, there's a film here. And at the time, um, one of the most famous pieces of film I've done wasn't famous at the time. It was when Kenny Roberts won the Indy Mile on the four-cylinder dirt traffic. And we had that. Nobody else had that. We had it. We didn't mean to get it because we were there to film Rex Beauchamp and Gary Scott, but uh, Kenny won the race. And fortunately for us, we got the footage, which has become, I think, one of the most famous pieces of film that we ever shot. Maybe, maybe Mike Hellwood in the Alabama is more, but certainly that one is pretty good. And that's how I decided to start to put a film together. And the only other film that had been done at that time of any feature length quality was uh, On Any Sunday with Bruce Brown. I didn't want to follow Bruce's footsteps because I had a totally different vision um, than Bruce did. And so I just sort of mapped out all of the things that I thought would, you know, I'd like to film. And um, the title, Taking It to, or Take It to the Limit, came at the end of the filming. And it became as a result of watching some of the greatest writers in the world do what they do. I mean, including Mike Hellwood and Barry Sheen and Stevie Baker, and Roger DeCosta, Marty Smith, Russ Collins. I mean, the, the, the icons of that era. And when you watch those guys do what they do, I couldn't think of a better title than Take It to the Limit because they did that every time they got on a motorcycle. They were Absolutely. dedicated. And I was as jealous as all hell that they could do that because I never could. Well, I mean, clearly, if you went from not riding a motorcycle until you were in high school and then you became a, a, a racer, you know, you, you clearly had some natural talent. And I, I want to ask you about a little bit later, as I understand you did some stunt riding as well for some films. But um, so so you did uh, Take It to the Limit. That was from 1979. And then uh, you get into the 80s and you start making uh, I know you've produced some TV shows. I mean, some of the very early motorcycle TV shows. Um, and you had one of the, the, the first one, the Peter Star motorcycle show, is that the mid eighties? 
That was, a, a, yes, that was the early 80s, actually 83, I think. Um, as I've gotten older, the memory's a little fuzzy in terms of years, but uh, we, um, I, I've been working with the Stroh Brewery and um, the man that ran the Stroh Brewery was a guy called Dave Martin and he and I had become friends and uh, they had a show on television called the Stroh Circle of Sports. And uh, I said to him, you know, you need to have motorcycles in there. And he'd never been to a motorcycle event. So I took him and his key staff to a couple of races and they educated them on how exciting it could be. And um, as a result of that, uh, we put together a 13-week TV series, ma mainly made up of films that I'd already done, that had actually already shown on other TV stations. But uh, Stroh stepped up to, to sponsor that, as did Chevrolet, as did Honda Motorcycles. And that kicked off a lot of interest in that time. There's nobody that had a national TV show uh, showing nothing but motorcycles. And um, it lasted 13 weeks. And then through my relationship with Stroh's, we decided to create the Stroh Mile Dirt Track series. And that was in the end of 84 uh, through 85. We filmed seven one-hour shows uh, at Mile Dirt Tracks and really set the standard. And uh, uh, Stroh's really stood up for that. They put in uh, over $700,000 in that first year wow. in, in prize money, in money to the promoters, um, in the cost of television in terms of um, televising it. And um, that had never been done before, to my knowledge. And so that was, that was the first. And during that same period, we managed to develop um, a live TV video camera, and uh, which we used at the Decoin Mile, uh, to record the first live footage from a mild dirt track race. It was on Ricky Graham's bike. And then we used that again at San Jose on Ted Booty's bike. And, um, and I was, you know, it was great to do that, and it was a lot of fun, but I never thought of that as a business. So I never pursued it. It was just one of those things you do for the shows you're doing yourself. And now you wouldn't expect to see anything on television about motorcycling without having those small video cameras on board. Well, um, and that, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, in this day, you know, the, the, how ubiquitous GoPros are and little tiny cameras mounted all over race bikes. I mean, it's something that people take for granted. But, you know, um, I don't know what the camera looked like that you mounted to a, a race bike on a on a dirt track, but I imagine it was much larger and it was much more complicated to get it mounted in a way that didn't interfere with the racer. But uh, yeah, we take it for granted, all these micro cameras and small little uh, you know, action cameras, but uh, yeah, it had well, to start one, somewhere. Yeah, one little story about the, the dirt track is if you put a camera on, on the front of a dirt bike uh, on a mild dirt track, within a half a lap or a lap at the most, you can't see anything because the dirt from the bike in front, right? <laughs> so what we had to develop and did develop was a window cleaning device. Um, and the way we did it was we took two 30, do you remember 35 millimeter film cassettes? Sure. We took two of those and we put blank clear film inside it. And then on each, on the end, we had a nine volt battery and a little motor and a timer. So that every 30 seconds, the, the timer would go off, the motor would start and it would pull a piece of clear film across the front of the lens to give ah. us another clear shot. It was crude, it was very crude, but it worked. Well, so that's all that matters, it worked. Yeah, and uh, nowadays you wouldn't think of doing something that crude because technology is so much better. Um, but it, that was the first time anybody had ever done that. And I believe that the reason it hadn't been done before is nobody figured out how to keep the lens clean. Right. Not so bad when the camera's pointing out the back, but when you're following a guy down the straight, slipstreaming him, you're getting all that dirt. If you see the the visors of the riders, you'll understand what I mean. Right? All the, yeah, all the tear offs. So how large and how heavy was 
this camera at that time? At that time, they were about seven, seven ounces. Okay, so they were, they were they were fairly compact then, I guess. Well, the camera head, that was just the head of the camera, the electronics and the microwave broadcasting system we built into the seat at the back. Okay. So that the, uh, in the number plate was about, um, about seven ounces for the camera and perhaps another three ounces for the, the windshield, the cleaning system. Okay. And then everything else was, we had a wire going to the back, uh, to the seat, and everything else was built into the seat. Um, because there was probably another seven or eight pounds of electronics that we had to deal with. Wow. Um, that was the only way we could do that because to put the full system at the front um, would have would have affected the handling of the bike. And that right. Was, yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Yeah. yeah. So you put the weight back, you know, in a place where they could sort of, you know, compensate for it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing about that series was in 1981 um, at Laguna Seca, um, we Suzuki asked me to make a film about superbike racing. And I didn't want to do just another film, uh, you know, about, about bike racing. I want to do something different. So we built a camera bike, um, a race bike. Dennis Smith, the cycle team, gave us the bike. Dan Gurney's staff built the camera mounts on it. And we put a camera on the gas tank, a film camera. Uh, I mean, a full-blown film camera, probably weighing about 15 pounds, on the gas tank. And uh, the AMA gave us permission to run it during the race, actually during the race. Never, they'd never done that before. Wow. The issue was David Emby rode it for us, did a great job, uh, but he wasn't in the race to win the race. In fact, we paid him to ride. He would do about eight or 10 laps and then come into the pits. We'd change the film magazine and then wait for the leaders to come back around again and send him out again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, that's how we got the footage. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the bike wasn't up to you know full competition standards in terms of the speed, plus the fact you got this huge camera on the top, which David couldn't get behind to, for slipstreaming. I mean, it was right. it was a problem, and it did it did affect the handling because the central gravity was it was so much higher. Uh, but David did a terrific job and got some footage of, of the first time a film camera had ever been allowed in an actual race. Wow. So, but, uh, Unfortunately for us, Suzuki didn't win the race. Freddie Spencer ran away with it. I mean, he was a straight and a half ahead of everybody at the end. And uh, so it became a film more about the experience of superbike racing than it was a film about superbike racing. Because as I said, Wes Cooley was supposed to win it for Suzuki and he didn't. Freddie Spencer won it for Honda. And it changed the entire atmosphere of what the film became. Sure, that makes sense. So how did you, you know, you've, you've done... Uh... Films, TV shows, uh, you, you were uh, putting together this dirt track series. How did you get into stunt riding for films? I, I know, you, what did I read that you, some of the movies that you had been involved with were like uh, Lethal Weapon 3 or uh, several others that are kind of well-known films that you did some, some stunt yeah. riding in? Well, it started out because I built camera bikes for my own business and for my own use making motorcycle films. And I got a call one day from a guy called Sparky Evanson who was working on Lethal Weapon 3, and he said, you still have your camera bikes? I said, yeah. He said, how would you like to work on a real movie? You know, jackass is calling cool. you know, like I've never worked on a movie before. But, <laughs> um, uh, so unfortunately, Spock has long since passed away, and he and I were really good friends, and um, a great guy. But anyway, he said, well, I got a job for you. So um, I went down to meet with the director, and uh, she showed me what he wanted to do, and I said, yeah, I can do that. And that was my first job, Lethal Weapon 3, of writing. Um, a camera bike and um, that was that, that kicked it off and then after that um, I got to join Screen Actors Guild as a stunt performer and um, 
did a lot of commercials. Uh, I worked on a lot of major movies like Batman and Robin, Apollo 13. And it became a, a joke with Ron Howard. Ron Howard did um, Apollo 13, which uh, I worked on. And then he had another film called Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey. And Ron couldn't remember my name. And he told his guys, he said, find me that gap motorcycle guy from Apollo 13. <laughs> <laughs> And so they, they, they tracked me down and I worked on uh, uh, Ed TV. We had two motorcycles on that uh, particular. If I, I was an actor in that film as well. And uh, we did some stunt work on two motorcycles in the film. And um, yeah, a lot of people didn't know who I was. It was I was the motorcycle guy. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, well, like, but you know, that's was the cable guy, you know. <laughs> I, I find it interesting is that even though motorcycling is not as you know, popular or as common in some ways as it is in Europe is that, you know, these days you don't have an action film uh, trailer that unless, I mean, the new Bond film's going to have motorcycles in it. All the Mission Impossible films always have motorcycles in them. Uh, the Matrix films, I mean, if you're going to have a cool motorcycle, cool action flick, motorcycles are involved because of, you know, yeah. again, they're, they're much more maneuverable and, and dynamic than, you know, than cars or trucks would be or something like that. So, well, it's also a much younger audience. I mean, young people relate more, I think, to action motorcycles than action cars. The, um, you mentioned Matrix. Well, Debbie Evans rode the Ducati in Matrix. And uh, uh, I first met Debbie when she was uh, 14 or 15 and um, 1973, 74 era. And she became part of Take It to the Limit when she did the headstand on the bike trip. Yeah. And um, and she went on to be, I mean, quite honestly, the preeminent eminent, uh, female stunt person, stunt performer in Hollywood. And uh, and she's still doing it today. Uh, she just got back from Prague where she spent four weeks doing car stunts in Prague. Um, her and her husband, Lane, and I are good friends. We went riding about a week and a half ago at lunch just to catch up on, on some things, you know. But you talk about stunt people. She is just amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. I mean, um, she can do things with a motorcycle that I can only dream of. You know? Yeah, no, she's she's absolutely like I said, she's one of the top talents, you know, uh, for, for sure. So uh, that, you know, the 90s, you were doing some of the, the stunt performing uh, on some films. You've done a lot of creative work. Uh, I know you've published uh, articles in a lot of magazines. You've had articles in, in our magazine, Rider and others. Um, and uh, a few years ago, you published your book, uh, Motorcycle Traveler. So tell us kind of how you got to the point where you published this book, which is beautiful. It's it's a thick hardcover book with lots of photos. It's got a companion DVD, and it's about you traveling to uh, uh, and riding in different countries and meeting lots of different people. So how, what was the inspiration for your, for your new book? Well, in 2004, I was diagnosed with cancer, and... Um, Spent a lot of time after that studying natural medicine um, because I decided then that what conventional medicine was offering me was insufficient to make sure that I lived a, an active, healthy life. Part of that studying was um, reading about what we call leading a purposeful life, having a purpose in your life. People with purpose in their life have a higher survival rate than people who don't. I mean, that, that's a fact. And so I started to look at what's my purpose in life. And um, I decided that it had to be something to do with motorcycling, because that was the constant theme, basically from high school right through to at that stage, 61, 62 years old then. And um, I decided to what would be good for me to do was to get back on a motorcycle and do some uh, foreign countries, which places I'd either never been to before, 
all places that I'd been to, but never ridden a motorcycle before. And I thought it would be fun to go and ride a motorcycle. There. And so, so I wrote a list of 12 countries and at the rate of two a year, ticked them off. And um, it became a big thing for six years for me. I mean, uh, if you can imagine going to all the, well, they're all, all the countries are in the book, there's 12 of them. And some of them you would say, oh, that's okay. Any, anybody can go to Scotland as an example, but my heritage is Scottish. And I always wanted to ride around where William Wallace, who was the, the patron of Scotland, if you like, um, where he was born, where he died, where he was actually sold to the British government, the battles he had at Selkirk and the, the Barns of Air and all of those places. And so I did a, a story called On the Trail of Braveheart and rode that, the, the, that area. And then I did, because I was so close, I did the Isle of Man and Wales at the same time. And, yeah, they were easy to do because I'm English and that there. But when you haven't done some of those things before, I'd never ridden the Isle of Man in anger before. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, and um, although I'd filmed there in 77 when we brought Mike Howard out of retirement, I'd spent a lot of time in the Isle of Man. But um, that became part of the book. But countries like Finland, Poland, Romania, um, Ecuador, uh, I went to, I wanted to go to Canada. I said, no, nah, it's too close. But I, so I went to Quebec and, and I had to speak French, you know, so that became an adventure and sure. thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, do you realize you can go whale watching in, on, in the St. Lawrence River in Canada, in Quebec? No, that I didn't know. Yeah. I've done it in the oceans in the Pacific before, yeah. but yeah. It's in the book. There are whales in the St. Lawrence Seaway and you can actually go whale watching uh, from Quebec. Wow. I didn't know that either. It was um, quite a thing. Yeah, that's a beautiful city. I've I've ridden a Can-Am Spider over the big bridge uh, from the U.S. into uh, to to Quebec City, and uh, yeah, it's a really beautiful place. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then, what you know, what started the whole thing off really? Do you remember a three-minute film that's on the internet about what they call the Grand Riders of Taiwan, the old guys around Taiwan? It's yeah. called. And well, I saw the video, and I'll be quite honest. I cried. I got tears in my eyes. I had a lump in my throat because these were all cancer survivors. They'd had you know, heart disease. I mean, any disease you, of, all, of getting old, they had it. Right. And what they decided at their various ages, and the average age was 82. And I was 69 going on 70 at this point. And this is my first ride to anywhere of this book. And I said, I got to ride with those guys. And I made contact with them through the charity that takes care of them. And um, they invited me over to ride with them, which I did uh, in um, 2011. And that became my first of the 12 rides. I've been back to Taiwan eight times since then. I've ridden with them three times. And um, there's not many of them left anymore because that was some years ago now. It's, in fact, it's been 10 years this October since I first went there. And um, during that ride and during the, the talks that I, was, I, I gave in English with a, a Chinese interpreter, I started to realize more and more about this living a purposeful life and what it was about getting old and getting older. And here were these guys that against, literally against all medical health odds, decided to ride around an island that they lived in their entire life and never ridden around. Sure. And, you know, it's a very parochial kind of experience. And, um, and so when I saw that film and going over there, and the second time I went, um, the, the local sponsor made a film about us. I took 10 Americans with me. Uh, you probably know some of them. And we went over there and rode with them in 2012. And they actually made a movie about us. 
You can see it on my website, motorstar.com. There's a 22 minute movie about a second visit to Taiwan. And the Grand Riders original video is also on my website. So if you want to catch up from the beginning of what inspired me to actually start going to other countries. And every country I went to, I managed to talk about the, to people there uh, about getting old and, and recovering from cancer and what you need to do. So it became a mission as well as an enjoyable enjoyment thing for the latter part of my senior citizenship, if you like. And all of the rides, except that first ride in Taiwan was after the age of 70. And I hope by doing that to inspire other men and women, don't get me wrong, I'm not sexist, to actually, you know, not sit at home watching television, but get off their butt and do the things which made them passionate in their, in their younger days and keep doing it, you know? Well, absolutely. And, you know, some folks, if, you know, especially if they get into a retirement age, they may have the, the time and, and hopefully the accumulated resources where they can, you know, do that bucket list trip where it's maybe go ride in the Alps or something that they've never done before. Um, you know, what I really like about your book is that you definitely take a, um, a, a you know, um, open-armed approach to these different cultures that you visit. You know, there's a lot of great photos of you meeting uh, local people and um, some motorcycle enthusiasts in these local countries. I've had the good fortune to um, ride in a couple of the countries that you have uh, uh, documented in your book. I've been to Thailand and ridden there. I've ridden in Ecuador with Court Rand, just as you did, uh, you know, and, and stood on the equator there in Ecuador. And um, yeah, those are really special places. And I think, especially since, you know, we've gone through this whole pandemic thing where it's really sort of forced some people to limit some of their activities, but also it's really helped some people um, reevaluate their priorities and to basically um, not, not hesitate to pursue some of these things. If you have some dreams or a bucket list trip or something like that, is, uh, you know, soon or now is the time to do it, you know? Well, the thing I'll tell you about is um, surviving from cancer is, is a big issue because a lot of people don't. And it's important to understand what you're dealing with when you're dealing with cancer, if you're gonna survive. And it's important equally to continue to live, not to be a victim to the disease, but to continue to live. And for me, continuing living was not making one more film, to be quite honest. It was to get out there and mix it with a lot of people, different people, and, and really challenge myself. I mean, because when you're on your own and you're, you know, you're touring some of these places on your own, of course, when in Ecuador, I went with Court Randos, did you? In uh, Thailand, I was gonna go on my own. And I called up the, uh, the, the Thai government here in Los Angeles and said, can I get some roadmaps and some places? Well, why do you need those for? Well, I'm going to go ride a motorcycle around Thailand. And they said, uh, on your own? Yes. Do you speak Thai? No. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, and they called me back and they said, look, we, we know who you are. We've done some research on you and we, we don't want anything to happen to you. So we're going to send a guide with you. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. Yeah. So but the, the interesting part about it is they sent me a guy who could ride a motorcycle, but not, particularly, not particularly well. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't well. So, Kawasaki, who loaned us the motorcycles, gave, said, well, we wanted two 650 uh, versus adventure bikes, right? And they couldn't provide those. So they said, we've got a 1,000cc Ninja and one 650 adventure bike. And um, I took a look at the, the Thai guide. And I said, you better have the adventure bike. I think this Ninja is going to be just a little bit too much for you. Oh, yeah. And, oh. and we did a lot of dirt roads. And if you've ever ridden a 1,000cc Ninja down a few dirt roads, 
it became a challenge. But what, what a it, what a fulfilling experience to go to some of these villages and meet some of these people, kids that had never seen a big motorcycle before, and they're looking at it like, dare I get close to it, you know, and stuff. Well, it's it like the circus coming to town. I mean, they're just absolutely ecstatic to see, you know, uh, you know, like people that are from not clearly not from their local village or area on on big fancy motorcycles. I mean, because small displacement utilitarian motorcycles may be commonplace in some of these countries, but yeah. um, you know, a big sport bike or adventure bike, those are those are very unusual. But you know, what you were saying in, in your book is that, you know, by being on a motorcycle, you meet people in a different way than you would if obviously if you showed up in a tour bus. But even if you're in some sort of, you know, SUV or car, it's like you you are more in touch, just like you say with, with, we would all say with riding a motorcycle, you know, you're in touch with the, with your, more of your senses and the environment and the sensations and smells and so forth. And you also have more immediate contact and, uh, and curiosity with uh, locals uh, when you're on a motorcycle than traveling by other means, so. Well, I, that's absolutely true. And I think you, you're received in a very different way by the local people. Um, you're not coming in a tour bus or a car. There's a, there's, you don't have that protective layer around you. You're, you're vulnerable. And I think they sense that. You take your helmet off and you're there just like any other person. You know, you've got your riding jacket on or whatever, but you take your helmet off and you're, you're in them. And I find that to be, well, put it this way. If more people could do that and spread the word of good motorcycling and good humanity to like, you know, a lot of the world's troubles would be different. Not all of them by a long shot, but I mean, we would have a different layer of communication with so many different people. And I found that in every country I went to, whether it was civilized first world country, like you know, New Zealand as an example, uh, to essentially the backwoods of, of Thailand, um, or, or even Romania. I mean, you go to some of the back areas of Romania, it's still World War II back there. Sure. In, you know, it's... Um, you know, they're not farming with tractors, they're farming with horses and carts. Right. And um, they, yeah, they do have tractors, don't get me wrong, but I mean, you, you, you come across most people, it's very, very, uh, almost third worldish in so many areas, but you show up on a motorcycle. Um, I'll tell you one experience that really, really touched me. And, and I was riding with a, a, at the time with a Polish guy called Zezuada. Uh, I actually met him in England years and years ago, so he wasn't a stranger to me. We rode together and we got to this one village where Prince Charles uh, from England actually owned a house. And it was a, it was a quaint little village in the middle of nowhere. And um, uh, we went into the church, which was one of these fortified churches. And there was a young girl, I guess she would have been, I don't know, five years old, seven years old, maybe something like that, asking for money so you could take a photograph. You know, and this is a, is a tourist thing. And my friend said, be careful how you do that. That could be misinterpreted. So we ignored her and um, went into the church, came back out and her father was, or grandfather was with her on the way back, who was doing the same thing. And we, so we paid them and we took a picture of them um, because that was the biggest way they earned a living. They had no other income. And, but as my friend said, you just have to be careful because you're a foreigner you don't know how it's going to be interpreted. And um, unfortunately, everything worked out well, but it was a good thing to know. And it was similar in Ecuador. If you went to some of the remote villages in Ecuador, you actually paid people to pose for a picture. 
and Court, God bless him, is is great in that that arena. And um, he makes a big joke out of it because he speaks Spanish, and I, I speak very very little Spanish. So he makes a big joke out of it and gives them the two, three, four, five dollars, whatever it is, and you get to get your picture, you know, with the locals there, which is a lot of fun. But it teaches you that we are very privileged. You know, in America, we are one of the most privileged groups of people anywhere on the planet, Bonham. And it, it irks me greatly that bit by bit, we seem to be throwing away those privileges. We're throwing away those freedoms. And I've lived here now. I chose to come to America. I chose to be an American. And um, I, because I, I like freedom. I like what America stood for in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it just irks me greatly that we see this being taken away. And us as motorcyclists, I think, need to be more vocal in maintaining our sport and maintaining our our right to do various things because we are only one step away at any given time for some dictatorial government people to say, motorcycles are dangerous, we're not gonna have them anymore. And, and we're, we're screwed at that point. Well, I mean, we've, we've been dealing with it since the you know, middle part of the last century where you know, it's just motorcycles have had a, a bad boy biker image for a long time, which of course can be commercialized and marketed and so forth. But it's never really been fully embraced in this country as it is in uh, Europe or many other countries where motorcycles are utilitarian transportation. They are just as common as, or more so than, than cars and trucks because uh, it's just an economic uh, necessity. Here, they're much more recreational vehicles and they're more of a luxury. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's really by visiting some countries, particularly those that are, are uh, more impoverished than ours, you know, like you say, Ecuador, uh, Thailand, um, you know, I, you mentioned Romania, I've been to uh, some parts of Slovenia and uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and so forth that also have some very rural areas are still sort of suffering the sort of uh, after effects of, of war and, um, you can really appreciate how fortunate we are when you visit some of those places. Heck, you can even go to some rural areas of the United States and realize that, you know, if you live in a more urban area and you have um, you have uh, some financial security, home, and so forth, that there's a lot of people struggling in a lot of different places. And so, I couldn't yeah. agree more. And if I can finish up the about the book, the, the one country that I knew nothing about that totally surprised me when I went there was Israel. Mm. Um, I, it wasn't on my original bucket list. Um, I was talked into it by someone who says, you really got to go to Israel. And it was the last country I went to, because quite honestly, it was the, the last that I was really interested in. And I learned so much from that country and so much about the lies that are told in the media here in America about Israel, that it was shocking. And it's a beautiful country full of great people. I mean, um, you know, and you'd be amazed that the, the Arabs, the Palestinians and the Israelis, they live and work side by side. If you leave them alone, they're fine. Right. If you want to promote political upheaval, yes, you can. But it is, there, are, there are Palestinians that live in Israel that have the same privileges as Israelis. I got to go to the Knesset. Now, that's really, we were invited, I was invited to go to visit with this uh, member of the Knesset, which is their house of the parliament. And even with an invitation, you go through a security that took us 30 minutes to get through security, wow. to get in there. Um, and it, it's, it's real. I mean, the people that deal with security in Israel, they're real, they, they don't mess. And of course, on my bucket list, if you read that chapter in the book, uh, I'd seen years ago, somebody had stood next to a, a 
gorgeous female soldier. You know, she was so pretty. And I said, that's on my bucket list if I'm going to Israel. I've got to get me a, a picture of me next to some gorgeous female soldier. Well, we found one in Jerusalem. And, and um, we said, you know, would you mind posing for a picture? And she said, no. So I got my picture. And she's standing there with, I don't know what kind of gun it was, but it's obviously fully automatic. She was fully loaded with everything. And that, that gun, she explained to me, is one little orange piece of plastic away from being totally fully automatic. Right. And they, they mean what they do in terms of protection. Um, they don't mess around. And it was interesting to learn that. And uh, we got to go to the West Bank. We got to go to look in the, to the valley where the, uh, the big tank war for the Six Days War took place. I mean, uh, we learned the history of the Dead Sea. We went to the Negev Desert. We learned all about that. Um, it's, I came away from that having learned so much more than I ever expected to do. And um, again, I had a guide, fortunately, because I don't think I would have seen anywhere near what I get to see without a guide. Sure. And uh, he did a terrific job for us. And um, uh, yeah, I would, I would recommend any of those countries I've been to. And um, uh, there's, there's nothing that I've experienced when I say, don't go to this country. Right. Every one of them was a, a worthwhile experience. And remember, it was all to, to, to bring my passion for living to continue for me. My, I mean, I'm still dealing. Once you've had cancer, you're always dealing. I mean, in spite of what they say, are you in remission? You may not have an active cancer at that moment, but your body's in a condition where it can come back at any time because your cancer is vulnerable to that kind of thing. So you're always conscious of that. And by being having a purposeful life and doing continuing with motorcycling, um, has kept me, I believe, focused and kept me alive. I'm now 78, I'll be 79 in a couple of months. I'm planning my 80th ride next year. I'm planning a big ride for my 80th birthday next year. And- um, Where are you going? Um, or is that a secret? Right now it's a secret. We're okay. still working on it, but it's a big one. Okay, um, good. And it's uh, because I think, you know, four score years is something worth celebrating. <laughs> Absolutely. Assuming we're going to make it. You know, not only that, but to be healthy and vital to, to take on a, a big adventure. You've clearly been on some adventures in some places that, uh, you know, like I said, they're not necessarily tops on everyone's lists. And, uh, you know, as I, you know, because in part, because I've worked at a magazine, I've had the good fortune through my work at the magazine to travel to a lot of places that I might not have gone to otherwise. And as much as it is great to ride a motorcycle on cool roads and go to places like Stelvio Pass or to, uh, if you could go see a famous site like Machu Picchu, but it's really like you were saying about with Israel, it's, it's being able to go to a place and have your horizons expanded to really kind of open your eyes to what the real, what the reality is in a place, not what we, you read about in the news or newspaper, which is often sensationalized. It's often, you know, not fully accurate. And um, so, yeah, it's really gives you an appreciation for, you know, our commonality with people all over the world. I mean, it's just, it's, because the people that live in any of these countries are not their government, like the government or the representatives and what we see and, and on the news is, is not the, pe the people on the ground. I mean, and by nature, most people are good people. They're just trying to get by. They're trying to take care of themselves and their family. And you see that it's it's not that there's a lot of things that um, uh, there's not a lot of hatred out there. Like it's, it's as pervasive as it is. And so being able to travel and see that, I think, gives people that sort of uh, appreciation of our common humanity. Yeah, we were talking early on about what I do with my dealer shows, you know, and, and, yeah. and what I do, um, I have a program, it's called An Evening with Peter Starr, and um, 
I will go to a dealer and the dealer gets a choice of three programs that I, that I do. One is we show Take It to the Limit and we have a Q&A afterwards. And it's the original director's cut of Take It to the Limit. And um, that's basically a two hour show, hour and a half for the movie, usually about 30 minutes of Q&A. And that's one effort. The other one uh, we do is, this is my 60th year of being in the business, basically. I, yeah, I took six years off for rock and roll, but um, I, I, never, <laughs> I never really left motorcycling in my heart, so to speak. And um, so I, I go through some of the years, some of the better years and show film clips from various things I've done and talk about those. And then the third program that dealer gets to choose is um, my world trips, because I got video from the world trips as a DVD with the book. And um, I get to talk about some of the people I met and, and uh, how we dealt with different things in different countries. And uh, BMW uh, is one of my supporters in this. They support me when I play BMW dealers uh, because BMW riders seem to turn out better for this kind of a tour. And um, I find they respond in a, in a really positive way to it, uh, as does a lot of the smaller sort of enthusiast dealerships like, you know, Triumph and KTM and so on. Um, but that's what I'm doing currently. And um, we've got uh, some BMW dealers lined up between now and the end of the year in Colorado and Texas. And we're now starting to look at California. But we're planning for 2022, uh, for the spring slash early summer 2022. And that will be... Uh, uh, the big push for, for me for dealer shows for next year. And um, because at the end of next year, starting in uh, September, will be the start of my 80th birthday ride. And uh, so there's, there's a lot coming up. I'm keeping myself really busy. So with your dealer programs, I mean, is this uh, something that dealers do is, is kind of a customer outreach? Is this a sort of, you know, customer appreciation that provides, uh, you know, a sense of community for them? If you're giving a, a presentation, it's drawing folks in? Yes. That's exactly what it is. It's a customer appreciation. It's a, as I said, some, some brands um, achieve it more you know, better than others. And uh, they just do because they have a, a more of an enthusiast following than just buying a bike to go to work on, you know? And so those dealers that do that, and, and there's, there's no particular brand that does it. Um, I mean, I've got Honda dealers that do it and I've got Honda dealers that would ever look at it. Uh, it's, it's really the owner of the dealership and how he looks at his, uh, at his customers. But yes, it's definitely a customer appreciation. It's an excuse to bring their customers and, and potential customers into the dealership. Uh, they look at the bikes, they meet the dealer. Sometimes we have reps there, as an example, the BMW rep, if I'm doing a BMW dealership, will come and be there that night and they represent the brand. Um, we do that and it becomes a really interesting evening. We, generally speaking, get between about 120 to 150 people. Wow. Uh, in an evening. It's a good turnout. Uh, yeah. And we carry everything. The dealer, all the dealer has to do is to tell his, tell his customers. We come in with a big 13 by 8 foot screen. We have our own projector, our own sound system. We can, we can actually play to 250 people if we had to uh, with the size of the screen, the projector, and the sound system. Uh, it's a turnkey operation. Uh, all the dealer has to do is to, and we provide the dealer with a promotion kit. He just has to stamp it and send it out to his, uh, uh, to his customers. That's great. That's great. Now, with um, some of these dealers, is this, is this, I know, again, we're kind of with, with this enduring COVID situation. Is this something that can be done outside? Uh, you know, I know having a lot of people into a dealerships, depending on their size, aren't that big, but uh, some are, some aren't. But uh, is it something you could do out in a parking lot or something, or do you need to do yeah. it indoors? No, we could do it in the, in the parking lot. And of course, it depends on what time of year you're talking about. And uh, we, yeah, 
before COVID, I was in Florida. I did, I did five BMW deals in Florida. And the one in, um, in Tampa, um, it, it was a mess. I mean, it was absolutely a mess. They had the biggest storm come through oh. that particular day. And, oh, we can't do this. And we'll, we'll do it at this pub. And they were going to do it outdoors at a pub, not at the dealership. The dealership didn't think they were equipped. And it rained and it rained and it rained. And we ended up, nobody came. I mean, if there was two dozen people there, I'd be amazed. And we all went in the pub and celebrated inside the pub. <laughs> we showed a couple of things. I talked for a little bit, but it was mainly, it was just one of those days. So depending on what the weather's going to be, where you're going to do it, you know, uh, we did, we played the uh, Ace Cafe in Orlando, for instance, uh, and that was a particularly good venue for us. And um, we played at the BMW dealer in uh, um, Pensacola. Yeah. And uh, it was, that was a great location. Um, location grew out of sellout crowd. It was, it was terrific. And as long as it's promoted and you reach those people, we'll fill the place. Sure. And it's a lot, and it is a lot of fun. And it's, I start out, when I show Take It to the Limit, I start out by looking at the age of the people in the crowd. And I say, well, some of you are not going to get this, but I'm going to take you back 40 years in time. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what we do. Absolutely. And, and those, those people that have never seen Mike Harewood ride or Kenny Roberts or Russ Collins or Roger DeCosta, well, they might have heard their names, you know, get to ex experience who these people truly were in their heyday. Well, and they may have seen, again, photographs in magazines or something, but to see them in action and to see the, you know, the raw talent in, you know, you know, as it's unfolding, I mean, that's to see true professionals at work, as you said, you know, you had great admiration for a lot of the people that you were filming, uh, you know, great respect for their, for their talent and what they could do. And, and, you know, what you see in some of these films is certainly their grit and determination to, you know, uh, win by any means necessary, you know, at great personal cost to them sometimes they're sometimes injured they're sometimes you know dealing with uh you were talking about kenny roberts and his uh uh you know uh, the was it the fc 750 that was uh, excuse me the uh, tz 750 was you know this almost unrideable motorcycle that he uh managed to you know uh bend to his will <laughs> so yeah i and, and to hear him talk about that one of the things that i've got that's in um not in that book, but in my first book called Taking It to the Limit 20 Years of Making Motorcycle Movies, is a piece of film where I went back and interviewed Jay Springsteen, Corky Keener, and Kenny from their perspective. Because what happened was Kenny came from the back of the grid to being in third. And at the time, um, Springsteen looked over, Keener was leading, Springsteen looked over his shoulder because they were just playing around. They were, Rex Bochamp had dropped out of the race with a blown fist, and Gary Scott wasn't even in the hunt. Um, no, there was just Springer and Keener. Springer looks around and he sees Kenny, who's come from 20th, right, to third. And, and, and Springer, next time Corky looks around, Springer goes, he puts his finger in the air and he goes like number one, because Kenny was number one, and he points it over the shoulder, meaning number one's coming, right? <laughs> well, Keener thought, he's giving me number one, he's going to let me win. And then when he turned around a second time, he saw the same finger. Then Corky said, I think he's just shooting me the breeze, shooting me the bird, you know. <laughs> and, was, and I've got all this on film, this interview piece. But the, and what happened was Kenny won in the drag race from turn four to the finish line and won by about a half a bike. And uh, as Springer said, he came by us like 30 miles an hour faster than we were going. 
and said it was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. The, you know, you know, I've got a podcast. I don't know whether you've had a chance to tune us in or not. I have a, a video podcast at Motorstar. It's if you go to YouTube, it's youtube.com slash motorstar. And I just interviewed Ben Bostrom recently. Well, Ben is one of the few people that's ridden a TZ700 dirt tracker. And when Ray Abrams built a replica that Kenny rode in 2009 at the Indy for that renewal where Valentino Rossi was there, um, Ben Bostrom was there. And they offered a ride to Valentino and a ride to Ben Bostrom. And Valentino said, no. <laughs> Absolutely. He said, no, no way. No, no way, he said. And Ben got on and rode it. And you talk about scary stories. Ben, in, in my podcast, Ben tells just how scary that bike was. Well, and you actually led right into my next question. You do have this uh, video podcast series, the Motostar uh, podcast, and you've interviewed a lot of the greats. I mean, Ben Bostrom is one of them. You've interviewed uh, Eddie Lawson, uh, Freddie Spencer, uh, Kenny Roberts, many others. Um, and you have them share stories about, you know, what it was like when they were racing at various times. And so, um, uh, so how did that podcast? I mean, seems like every, we got a podcast, you have everybody got a podcast these days, but you know, you have access to uh, some of those folks that uh, others might not be able to do. So and you also have a history with them. So, yeah, well, one of the reasons I have a history with them is because I made films about them in different times. I mean, uh, I consider myself pretty close to Kenny senior and junior. I made a film about them called Like Father, Like Son. Um, and once you know a, a top few, you get to know others. You know, people sort of, oh, you're Peter Starr that did blah, 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 you know. And, um, and it comes because they've seen you in a photograph with Roger DeCosta or whomever, you know. It's, um, that's how that builds. And, um, and so my first 15 guests were all American world champions. I mean, Penn Hall and, and Greg Hancock and Brad Lackey and the, uh, Rainey, Lawson, Roberts, Ben Spees. Um, I can't think of the. the, the Wants is on a, you interviewed Kevin Schwantz. Kevin yeah. Schwantz. I mean, uh, and then I decided after 15, I said, you know, we're, it's ready to go more worldly. And I went and interviewed Jay Leno, who is somebody I've known for a long, long time. I'll tell you how long I've known Jay Leno. He has actual VHS copies of my very first films. <laughs> <laughs> and people are saying, VHS, what's that? <laughs> well, I mean, he's still got a VHS player that works, I'm sure. If he's got steam-powered motorcycles and cars, yeah. So, and, uh, But anyway, then we did um, Sammy Miller, who you may have heard of from England. He's got a great museum in England. He's a, 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 just a, a world-class person as well as a, a world champion rider. But, and then we did Debbie Evans, of course. We did Elspeth Beard, who rode around the world. Uh, when she was 22 years old in 1983 and rode through countries where women weren't allowed out of the house on their own, let alone ride a motorcycle through. Uh, quite an amazing woman. Um, and I've just tried to get it a little more uh, broad rather than just racing champions. But I still go back to racing champions. I just did, uh, in fact, this week, if you go to it, you'll see Reg Pridmore, who is um, the AMA's first, second and third Superbike champion. <laughs> oh, Reg, Reg is a great guy. I've had the honor of taking his class school a couple of times, and he's a he's a he's an absolute gentleman. He's really fun to be around. I've actually ridden on the back of a motorcycle with him. He takes students on the back of uh, of, of bikes around a track, and uh, to to have that sort of experience to ride on the back of a somebody who really knows what they're doing. Uh, and I'm not a small guy. I'm 200 pounds. To have 
my big old sack of potatoes on his back. Uh, I was really <laughs> amazed at what that, the lean angles and how hard he would break. And uh, it was, it was a, it was, I was, it was quite an experience. So yeah, Reg, Reg yeah. is a great guy. So yeah, he I've actually lives just down the road from where I am. So yeah. Right. I've known him a long time. We have the English connection, of course, you know. Uh, you know, Joe, he and I raced, uh, the, our first races were on the same track in the same year, 1961 really? in Silverstone. Yeah. Oh. And we didn't know that until we, I just did this interview. Yeah. So Legend, you, legendary track. Yeah. You never know who you're talking to until you get into a podcast and then the truth starts to come out. <laughs> right. right. But oh, well, we, did, we did Graham Crosby, for instance, and that actual, in actual fact was the fastest we got 14,000 views. These are one hour shows. Yeah. We got 14,000 views in a week. Wow. Which is off the charts. And that was Graham Crosby, and uh, who's a really interesting guy. And I'll just close this out by telling you one quick story about him. I'm in England at uh, Mallory Park in 2012 for the Festival of a Thousand Bikes. And I'm there to do a book signing of my first book with Kenny Roberts and Stevie Baker. And um, I spot Cross and I walk, I start to walk up to him and I'm listening to him as he's talking and he goes, talking to his crowd, he's got his, his entourage and he's got, yeah, this bloody wanker of a filmmaker. He says, I win Daytona twice and he doesn't even get me on his film that he's making and blah, blah. And he's, and I'm, I'm right behind him, right? Of course he knew it and he, he did the whole thing just for that, that effect. So I started out with the, the podcast by repeating that you know, back in 2012, and he goes, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, awesome. Yeah. We, have a lot well, of, we have a lot of fun. Well, you know, I know you've mentioned uh, motostar.com. That's your website. Uh, you know, if people go there, they can buy copies of, um, uh, you can buy a copy of The Bad Rock, uh, your, your first yep. film from 1973. You can buy a copy yep. of Take It to the Limit, uh, buy copies of your books, uh, access to your podcast. So basically, if people want, to know more about Peter Starr and all the things he's done, uh, you know, that's a good place to start is go to motostar.com. So Peter, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, uh, Greg, is, uh, as you know, I've been a contributor to writer, I was for, for many years with some of the stuff we did. And uh, I know formats have changed and uh, it's very difficult these days for, for magazines to exist. And I really appreciate the effort you're putting into this edition of Rider and, and what you're doing there. And I wish you the very best to keep that thing rolling. Keep it going. Thank you. Well, hey, if you're going to do your 80th birthday ride, you know, please, you know, hope you'll consider uh, writing a story about it or something that, you know, we'd be more than happy to publish a, a feature about your 80th, uh, 80th birthday ride. I look well, forward to hearing about it. We're trying to put together a charitable, a charitable part of it. And uh, I have a foundation called Healing Arts Education Foundation that works with men with prostate cancer. And that's where I spend about 50% of my time. And we're trying to figure out a way to make this ride some sort of a charitable deal. We don't know for whom yet. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, it's guys like you that will give us the publicity to bring the people out to hopefully make some money for whatever charity we choose to give it to. And uh, so I'm thanking you in advance for that. Well, yeah, absolutely. We'd be happy to promote anything on the website or social media or something if you got something. So, yeah, it keeps in the loop with press releases and stuff. So, again, Peter, I appreciate your time. Thanks again for being on the show. Uh, for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. 
You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.